Lord, we thank you that we do serve the light of the world, and that we thank you that you do, did step out into the darkness of this world, that we might have eternal life. Lord, I pray right now as we go to your word that you would minister to every heart that is here. We thank you that your word is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you that we're not studying an old antiquated history book, but the living, breathing word of God. Lord, may you minister to our hearts. May your spirit move among us in a mighty and a powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. I want to encourage you, if you're not already coming out on Wednesday night, pray about coming on Wednesday. We'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 4 this coming Wednesday. We continue verse-by-verse through the Old Testament. All right, let me get you caught up. 1 Corinthians, we've been talking about this. If you've been here every week, then some of this will be uh, review yet again, but that's okay. I was, most of you know I was a youth pastor for many years. It's good to repeat things. It's better to hear it again than to, to have missed out on it the first time. But the church at Corinth was living in one of the most wicked and vile cities on the planet. As we know, it was a church that was planted by Paul. And during Paul's time there, he had spent a, a couple of years planting this church, and they were firmly grounded, and he had gone away, and he'd been gone for five years. And then word came to him that the church in Corinth was not being salt and light as much as they were becoming more and more like this wicked city. Corinth was a church, or a city, filled with idol worship. It was a city very much into, you know, the pursuit of money and philosophy, and not unlike the city we live in today. It was a city by the sea, and it was a city that many would have called the sin city of their day. It was such a wicked place that to be a Corinthian was like a slur. It was like cutting somebody down. You're acting like a Corinthian. It was a word that was synonymous with adultery and paganism and idol worship and and just being somebody who had no morals whatsoever. And so the word comes back to Paul that from, from Chloe's house, a house where the study was being taught, saying, you know what? The church in Corinth has gotten their eyes off of God. And so Paul writes back to them to encourage them to get their eyes back where they need to be. It's a letter from their pastor. And in the first chapter, he talked to them about the fact that they lived in a city filled with immorality, but they were called to be set apart. Later on, he was confronting the fact that they had fallen into all this philosophy. And he said, you know what, guys? The only place for wisdom, the only source of wisdom is the Holy Spirit. He then then addressed the fact that they were getting caught up in chasing the paths of the world, and he said, you know what, the only way to heaven is the cross of Jesus Christ. He was basically writing back to them to encourage them to get their eyes back on the Lord. You know, that needs to be an exhortation to every one of us this morning, living in a very godless city, that, you know what, we can become like Santa Cruz or we can have an impact on it, amen? And God's called us to be in the world but not of the world, and so, so too, as what was happening in Corinth was happening in the church. He confronted the immorality in the church. He talked about the proper reaction to sin. Guys, as Christians, when we sin, it ought to break our hearts. Amen? We should not just think, oh, well, no big deal. I've been forgiven. While that's true, we are, God has called us to walk in holiness before Him, to have a heart and a desire to be more and more like our Savior every single day. We should not allow our sin just to become commonplace in our life. It should break us. And he wrote to Corinth saying, you need to be broken over your sin. You need to repent over your sin. You need not to let sin run rampant in the church and not address it. We then got to chapter 6, and he talked about not going before unbelievers for counsel because they were beginning to sue each other. And when their two brothers were fighting, they were running to an ungodly judge to get direction. 
And the Bible very clearly tells you and I that we are to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. And that's why when we go through difficulty, we should come to the body of Christ. We should go to the Word of God. We should come to those who God has placed in our life to disciple and minister to us as opposed to running to the world for answers. If you haven't figured it out yet, the world doesn't have any answers. Amen? None. And our Savior is the answer. It says in Psalm 1, again, to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly because God is our counselor and nobody else. Then in addressing the serious consequence of sin, he told them that Christian liberty was not a license for them to live like the world. Now the last couple of weeks, I want to encourage you if you weren't here to grab the CDs or the tapes because we talked about marriage, being single, and divorce. And that impacts everybody in the room, right? Because you're either married or you're single or maybe you've been divorced, but here's the reality. That God has something very clear to say to us. And what happened was the first six chapters was Paul addressing things that were going on in the church and the rest of the book was Paul answering questions that came from the people in Corinth. They wrote a letter and said, you know what? We're living in this city that's filled with sexual immorality. Should we even bother getting married? Maybe it's better if we just stay single because it's too much of a temptation. There's so much stuff going on. And maybe even the people that are married should just get divorced so we can focus on God. That was literally the question they asked. And we know that Paul responded back to them. And what he told them was that it is good for a man not to touch a woman, that someone who is married is distracted. They, they have two ministries, right? Ministering to the Lord and ministering for the Lord, ministering to their family. And we've talked about this repeatedly, that if you're married, it's a great thing and it's a high calling. God says it's not good for a man to be alone. When he created the, the heavens and the earth, and each day he went through, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, until he saw that man was alone, and he said, it is not good. So God created marriage, and it's a great thing, and it's a gift to be married, and it is your first ministry, guys. Amen? Your number one ministry is to minister to your wife. If you're not ministering to your wife and to your kids, which is a high calling in and of itself, then you should not be doing any other ministry. That's the number one thing that we need to do. And the number one thing I'm going to be accountable for before Almighty God on Judgment Day is what kind of husband and father was I first. And then he'll talk to me about being the pastor of this church. But the reality is that's a high calling, and it's a great calling. But you know what? Some are called to be single. And being single is not a curse. Amen, single people? That was weak. Amen? All right. Being single is not a curse. It's a calling. And while you are single, there's a great blessing that he talked about saying that you can be totally devoted to serving God in a way that a married person cannot. Now, I'm not saying that God won't have you be married later, but while you're single, what a privilege. You can serve God full force. No distraction of marriage and children. No, no other first ministry. The first ministry is serving God with your whole heart. And Paul wanted to encourage them to say, being single is a wonderful thing. Paul himself at the time was single, and he said, I wish that you were all as I am. But because of the fact that you struggle with you know, a desire for physical intimacy, then go be married. But I would rather that you all, all be as I am. And then lastly, last week, I closed off that section by talking about five attributes of somebody you ought to look for if you're, if you're looking to be married, if you feel like you're called to be married, if God's given you a heart and a desire to be married, these are five attributes you ought to look for in somebody who will be a godly spouse. Also, if you are married already, you ought to look at this list and say, am I being this in my house? And the five things that we saw last week, and I encourage you again to grab the tape, attributes of a healthy marriage or what to look for in a godly spouse. Number one, one who is already living faithful for God. Do not try to 
bring somebody to church. Try to missionary date. Amen? Don't drag someone into the kingdom. You don't want to marry somebody you have to drag to church. Amen? You don't want to have to have somebody, well, you know, he's really cute. She's fine. You know, got a nice car. Good job. Really stable, right? Who cares? How on fire for God are they? Amen? Gals, you want to marry a man who loves God more than you do. Because God has called him to be the spiritual leader in your home. And for some of you, you love God a lot. Well, guess what? God's got that guy for you. Aim high. Don't settle for less than God's highest. God has great things. And again, you want someone who's loving and following and serving God, who's content where they are and isn't striving to be married. You know what? If someone's striving to be married, run away quickly. Okay? Because here's the reality. If you think that marriage is going to solve the problems, it's not going to. The reality is marriage is going to magnify the problems if you're not on fire for God right now. So you want somebody who's content with the Lord, and when that person comes, says, praise God. I was content. I'm happy to stay where I am. But Lord, now you've brought me the one you have for me. Praise God. So number one, attributes of a healthy marriage or something to look for in a godly spouse is one who's already faithful. Number two, someone who has an eternal focus. Somebody who's got a passion and a heart for God. Someone who's Christ-centered in their life. Someone who's pursuing God more than anything else. And again, that might seem like a rarity. You might think, oh, that's just, I'm not going to find that person. You know what? You're not going to if you don't look for him. If you don't wait for him. If you don't trust God. And remember again, no striving. God did, get, did not give Adam a bow and arrow and say, go hunt down your wife. Right? He didn't put some, you know, some nightclubs in, in the garden, Right? Go get on down there, man. You better get jiggy with it. Go find yourself a wife, right? He didn't do that. What did he do? He caused a deep sleep to fall over Adam, and he brought him his wife. Amen? And so God's desire and God's heart is that we not strive. God's heart is that we would desire somebody who is on fire for God, who loves God as much or even more than we do, someone who has an eternal focus, and somebody who understands that marriage is their first ministry. You know, I sit in pre-marriage counseling sometimes, and, and I'll, the, the, the guy will be talking already about, you know, after you've been married a couple days, I've already got these plans for ministry. I go, bro, stop, and for the first year, minister to her. That is your first ministry. And you want somebody who gets it, and have someone who's like-minded toward ministry. If you have got a heart for ministry, you want to marry somebody who's like-minded in ministry, and heart for ministry. Second, uh, fourth of all, someone who's submitted to godly authority in pursuing their relationship. Somebody who is willing to come to your dad and ask for permission to, to court you. You know what? If any guy comes anywhere near my daughter and hasn't asked for permission, he's getting a club to the kneecap. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the reality is that if he doesn't respect me as her dad and seek my counsel, that's not the man for my daughter. That's simple. The reality is that if somebody is doing it in a godly way, they will want godly accountability. They will want to come to dad and say, dad, you know what, I have a heart for your daughter. I want to, I want to get to know her and I want to get to know her in a godly way. And I want, I want permission to do that and I want you to hold us accountable. And you know what, our initial time together, we want to make sure we're, we do it in your presence or in the presence of others. And not only that, to be submitted to those in authority in the body of Christ. You know, they're pastors, people like that, who they come to and say, you know what, we want to be accountable and we want to come before the Lord and we want to make sure we've heard from God that this is God's will for marriage. And then fifthly, they see marriage as God-ordained lifetime commitment. You know what? God's highest is never divorce. Never. There's three ways that someone is allowed to be divorced in the Bible. Abandonment, adultery, and death. And in the first two, God's highest would be restoration. Amen? 
So when you're marrying somebody, you're not signing up for the, oh, I'm going to try this out for a little while program. You're not going steady in high school, okay? You're making a commitment, a vow before God for a lifetime. Now, I know I'm reiterating something I taught you over the last two weeks, but it's so key because we live in a world today where God is being taken out of the equation when it comes to marriage. God created marriage, amen? And it's one man with one woman for a lifetime, and nothing else is marriage, amen? Nothing else. It's being watered down in the world today. So, after speaking to them about marriage, we move on to chapter 8. And now he's answered this question about marriage. He's answered this question about being single. He's answered that question about divorce. And now he's going to speak to them about another question that's arisen among the people. A question that they've written to him about. And the question really is this simple. Can or should Christians eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Now remember where they lived. They lived in Corinth. Corinth was filled with idol worship. The, the biggest spot in town was a huge temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the god of sexual immorality, basically. They had temple prostitutes, right? And idol worship was rampant, and they said, should we as Christians have anything to do with meat that's been sacrificed to idols? That's the question. Now, for you and I, you might say, what in the world's that got to do with me, right? I, I'm not, I don't have that question, but you know what it does speak to? It speaks to the liberty that we have in Christ, it speaks to the legalism we can fall into if we're not care, careful. And what God's highest is for us as Christians, and that's love. It shouldn't be abusing our liberty. It shouldn't be that we are condemning others with legalism, but that we are filled with the love of God in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we treat others. And so this question comes, should we do this? Now you have to understand something. The reason this was a question was that in that time when these people brought their offering to the idols, they would take it and cut it into three pieces, three parts. One part was sacrificed and burned, one part was taken home by the family to eat, and the other part was given to the priest. Well, there's so many sacrifices, there's no way he could eat all that food. So what he would do then is he would bring it down into the temple or into the market and they would sell it, and they would sell it a lot cheaper than the meat that was being sold in the regular market. So if you're willing to eat the meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, it was a lot cheaper. And so some of the Christians said, hey, you know, I don't care about eating meat. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a block of wood. So they put this meat next to a block of wood. That means nothing to me. It's cheaper. I'm going to go buy some. Some others said, no, wait a minute. That's been sacrificed to idols. You can't eat that. And so he speaks to them about liberty and how we're to use it and about legalism and about love. So that's really what chapter 8 is all about. How do we balance the fact that the Lord tells us to, that we are free? That we've been set free to live those kind of lives, but at the same time to pursue holiness and not to stumble others. And that's really what the chapter is all about this morning. Again, balancing both liberty, love, and legalism. As Christians, we do have freedom in Christ, but we've been called to live lives set apart. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to, be, to reflect Jesus to a lost and a dying world. But it was over this debate in the midst of this time of living in the midst of perversion, that this question was asked, and again, it was clearly bringing division in the body of Christ. We're going to get into the text, I promise, right now. But I want to say this. Some, some examples for today. We don't have this problem with going and buying meat sacrificed to idols. But you know what some of the freedoms that people struggle with today? Should a Christian have a TV in his home? 
Should a Christian go to a movie? Should a Christian have a Christmas tree? Should a Christian ever drink alcohol? Should a Christian allow his kids to go to public school? Should a, should a Christian meet on Saturday or Sunday? Should a Christian wear makeup? Should a Christian play cards, shoot pools? Should a Christian own a, a big house? Should a Christian have an expensive car? Should a Christian listen to certain kinds of drum beats and things in his music? Should a Christian be politically active? Should a Christian date? You know, these are all things that, in a sense, are non-essentials to the Christian faith, but are things that we need to address in our walk before God. Do we have liberty in these areas? Yes. But do we have liberty that might stumble others? The answer is no. We have liberty in non-essentials, but we don't have liberty in the essentials of Christianity. Amen? We can't have liberty in whether or not we drink coffee. And some of you are saying, praise the Lord for that, amen, brother, right? You have liberty in whether or not you drink coffee, but you don't have liberty in whether or not you believe in the resurrection. You don't have liberty in committing adultery. You don't have liberty to go out and lie and cheat and steal. But there are areas not directly spoken of in the Word of God where this is being addressed in the text here about the liberties we have. How should we live before others? How far should we take our liberties? And what goes from being a liberty to becoming sin at some point? And then at the same time, in the opposite extreme, what about those who look at everybody else and say, if any of you are doing any of these things, you're probably not saved. And then you have legalism. And you know what, in the middle of all that, it's not about liberty, it's not about legalism, it's about love. And it's about reaching others for Christ. So let's begin in chapter 8, verse 1. Look at liberty, love, and legalism. And again... We're going to see three things. We're going to see our freedom in Christ. We're going to see the proper motivation for our actions and a character trait of those who are legalistic. Look at verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols. Again, meat had been offered, split in three. It It was available all over in the market. It was a lot cheaper. You can, and not only that, there are even some restaurants where, you know, some Christians would go and sit in a in a restaurant at a place where idols were worshipped and eat a meal and would sit there while they were eating a meal that had been offered to an idol and other Christians would walk by and go, what in the world are you thinking? And so concerning meat offered to idols, it's interesting how Paul begins. Look what he says first. He doesn't just give an answer. He starts to talk about something else. What does he talk about? Look at verse, the rest of verse 1. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Should a Christian purchase meat from the temple market? Should he eat in a temple restaurant? And the first thing he says is, we know that we all have knowledge. Before he answers the question, Paul begins to address the foundational issue that they were struggling with. The heart and attitude behind the action that was taking place. You know what, guys? I believe so much more than the actions we take, it's the heart that we have that grieves God. It's the heart that gets us to that place where we are sinning. It's the heart that gets us to that place where we just don't care what the Bible says anymore. It's the heart that gets us to grieve Him. And the actions are an outpouring of our heart. The Bible says out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. You want to know somebody's heart? Listen to what they say. Listen to what they talk about. And we can watch someone's actions and see what their heart is. And so we see here that knowledge puffs up but love edifies. The word there for knowledge is gnosis. And more, the more we know, the more we think we know, the more puffed up and arrogant we can become. You never met people like that? You know, well, you don't understand, you don't know who you're talking to. Yeah, I do, a stinking bile sinner in need of a Savior. Amen? I mean, that's the reality. 
That's all of us. And the reality is that we get puffed up. I've got a bunch of letters after my name. You don't know how educated I am. I'll never forget being in Denver one time on business. I was there on a Sunday, and I went and visited a church. And this guy got up, and he was so arrogant, it was nauseating. It just made me sick to my stomach. He was talking about how he was debating people, and they just didn't know who they were talking to. And I, you know, I went up to him after, like, bro, I, you know, without him, you can do nothing. He gets all the credit, all the glory, all the praise, all the honor. I mean, I didn't hear another word you said after the first five minutes because you were so full of yourself. It made me sick. If I had been sitting in the middle, I'd have got up and left. It's not, and the reality is that we can get puffed up even in our knowledge, not just of education, but our knowledge of the Bible. Now understand, why do we study the Word of God? So that we can know the God of the Word. Amen? We, I, no, you know what? Nobody loves the Bible more than me. I love the Bible. It rocks. I love it. I love to study it. I love to read it. I love to spend time in it. It's awesome. But you know what? I love the God of the Word much more. Amen? Because this is a love letter that I might know Him. So I love this book because it's from Him to me. And sadly, some get so puffed up in their knowledge of the Word, they know the, the Word of God, but they don't really know the God of the Word. And it comes out in a lack of love, in a lack of joy, in a lack of passion for the lost. And what happens is it gets to be arrogant. And he said, you know what, knowledge puffs up. And some of you guys have knowledge that, well, idols are just blocks of wood. And it doesn't matter if there's an idol next to the meat. I'm not causing any harm. And so there's an arrogance because I have knowledge. And it's just those weak people that don't understand that these idols are just dead objects. And, you know, I can eat what I want. I have liberty. I have liberty in Christ and I can do whatever I want. You know, I know what the Word says. I'm being obedient to it. I'm not breaking any of the Ten Commandments. I can live however I want. And that's not God's heart. Paul is gently rebuking these guys because they had become puffed up. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 5, Paul speaking to them said, You were enriched in everything by Him, in utterance and all knowledge. They knew the truth. Were they living it? No. Why did he write this letter? Because they knew it here, but it had not transformed them here. You know, it's been said that many people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance between their head and their heart. It isn't us knowing about God, it's about knowing God. Amen? It isn't about knowing, you know, I know, and you've heard me use this analogy, I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I know what school he went to, how many years he played, what number he was, how many championships he has, so on and so forth. I get in an elevator with Michael Jordan, he's got no idea who I am. Because I know about him, but I don't know him. And a lot of people know about God in their head. And they can tell you things about the Bible, and they can tell you things about what the Bible says, and they can tell you things about, you know, quote, who God is. But when they stand before Him on Judgment Day, He's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. It isn't about knowing about God or knowing that a God exists. It's about Him being your best friend and having an intimate relationship with the Creator of the universe. Does it blow you away that Almighty God can be your best friend? How awesome is that, and why would we want any less? And he said, knowledge puffs up, and you guys have gotten arrogant. And he's gently rebuking them not to be trusting in their knowledge, not to put their faith in their knowledge. Again, we are to study to show ourselves approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We are to study the Bible. We are to know what the Bible says. Anybody even come to church more than one week, you know the emphasis we put on God's word here, amen? It's key. But can I say this? 
It's not the end of itself. It's what the Word of God brings us to that is important. It's that intimate relationship with the Lord. Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. That's why we must speak the truth in love. You can have the truth and you can stand on a box with a megaphone and scream at people walking by and nobody's going to get saved. They're not going to. Because you can be brutally truthful, but it's the love that's in us that draws people to our Savior. What's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness. Everything after love describes love. If there's no love, it's a clanging symbol. It's of no value. And he says to them, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge swells you up, and love builds others up. You can tell where somebody's heart is when they study the Word. If they walk around arrogant about how much of the Word they know, that's a sign of somebody who doesn't know the, the, really know the God of the Word. Because if you know Him, the outpouring is a supernatural love for people. I believe that we should be the most loving people on the planet. You look at our bulletin, the first six words God gave me for a vision for this church was, preach the Word and what? Love the people. I want to have the best fed, most loved sheep on the planet. Because that's what Jesus did when he came. He fed them and he loved them. Amen? And as Christians, that should be us. Not just a bunch of academic scholars of the word. Well, I know what it says. And, you know, I know it in the Greek and the Hebrew. And I got... You know what? I don't care if you don't know the God of the word. Amen? It should transform us. And that's what God's word does. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It transforms our lives. And in 1 Corinthians, it does say, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I become a sounding brass and clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. That's pretty clear. Without love, it's meaningless. He says, guys, knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. What are you doing? You walking around puffed up or you ministering to others? You loving others? You laying down your life for others? You serving others? What's your heart? Verse 2. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing. Yet as he ought to know. Spiritual maturity is not the, the breadth of our knowledge, but the depth of our love. I truly believe that. I truly believe that as we study God's word, the deeper we go into it, the more we're going to have a passion for the Word, but the greatest response of that or outpouring of that is going to be a supernatural love. And I'll tell you what, when God gives you a supernatural love for people, it transforms the way you live. It transforms the way you see people. It transforms the way you pray for people. It transforms your heart and everything that you do. It's no longer about me anymore. It's how can I love them? How can I serve them? How can I minister to them? How can I lay down my life for them? Spiritual maturity, not the breadth of knowledge necessarily, but the depth of love. Because knowledge can be used as a weapon to fight with or a tool to build with. God's Word can be used something we can sit in a room and debate each other till the cows come home over a non-essential doctrine, or we can go out and reach people who need to be born again. Amen? Now, I'm not saying there isn't time to discuss doctrine in the Bible. We should. But here's the reality. That should not be the emphasis of the church. The Great Commission is to go therefore into all the world and what? Preach the gospel. Debate doctrine. That's not what it says. It says preach the gospel. 
Because we, we should be, every Christian this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. Amen? should be a passion. We should be broken over it. And so we see here that he says, you know what? If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing. You know, anybody who has that know-it-all attitude, it proves how ignorant they are. If you think you know anything, you don't know anything, right? It's a realization as you study God's Word that it humbles you to realize how little we really know in comparison to God. Amen? You realize, you know what? I, I'm dirt compared to God. I'm nothing. I don't know any, Lord, I can't do this without you. It keeps you in a place of constant desperation, a place of humility, a place of crying out for Him constantly, as opposed to walking around going, yeah, I've been a Christian 25 years. These people are going to be blessed to have a conversation with me, right? <laughs> you know, and sometimes we get like that. We get this thing where we think that we've got something. Without Him, we can do nothing. And the original language, the word nothing means nothing. And we can't do anything apart from God. Without Him, we can do nothing. We, we need to be desperate for Him. We want to see the world transformed. We need to be so in love with Him that we're simply a reflection of Him. You've heard me say it before. Be the moon. What does the moon do? It reflects the S-U-N, right? And as Christians, we ought to be the moon and reflect the S-O-N. Be reflections of the sun as He shines upon us and we pour out on others. As we study God's Word, it ought to make us more humble and more desperate so that we might get to know the, the God of the Word. It is possible to grow in Bible knowledge and yet not grow in grace and in your personal relationship with the Lord. Remember, the Bible's not a book, it's a love letter. It's what it is. And so when you read it, say, Lord, this is your love letter to me. How do you want to minister to my heart and how can I know you better? How can I know you better? May we never let biblical knowledge replace passion and desperation for God. Amen? And now, some of you are thinking, man, this sounds weird coming from from our pastor, because he loves the I do. I love the Bible. I love it. But you know what? When I get to heaven, there's not going to be a Bible. Did you know that? But God's going to be there. The Word of God, Jesus is the Word. Amen? And so He is the fulfillment of everything. And so when I see this, I see Jesus, and I, it makes me fall more in love with Him, but we don't worship the book itself. We worship the one that the book points us to. Amen? And so he says, if any of you thinks he has knowledge, you don't know anything. If you think you're, you, you've got it all figured out, you know what? You need to come to the end of yourself. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. In Matthew 22, Pharisee, a lawyer, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. If we love God, he knows us. It doesn't get any better than that. The creator of the universe knows me. What's better, to think you know something when you don't know anything or, be to, or to be known by the one who knows everything? Which is better? To stay in a desperate place of, Lord, I can't do anything without you. Lord, I'm an imperfect marred vessel. Use me for your glory. You know what's a good prayer? Help! It's a good prayer. <laughs> I pray it often. Sometimes when I'm studying in the middle of the night, and I'm, you know, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and, I, and, and, and I'm not done. Help! That's a good prayer. And you know, God is faithful to that, and we need to be in that place of constant desperation, and not trusting in our knowledge, but resting in His greatness. Amen? And who he is. You know what's interesting? 
He says there that all the law and the prophets are tied up in the great commandment. Because you know what? If we love God, we won't have other gods before Him. If we love God, we won't worship graven images. If we love God, we will not take His name in vain. If we love God, we will not neglect to spend intimate time with Him or remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If we love our neighbor, if we love others, we'll honor our parents. If we love others, we won't kill people. If we love others, we won't commit adultery or covet someone else's wife. If we love others, we won't steal their stuff. We won't lie to them, and we won't covet His possessions. That's the Ten Commandments. And they're all wrapped up in loving God and loving people. Amen? Because if we love God, we won't break the commandments, right? Our heart will be broken when we do. And if we love people, we won't break the, the last six. And so the, so the key is, guys, fall in love with God. Fall in love with Him. Trust in Him. Be desperate for Him. Have a passion for Him. And you know what? Then you won't walk around talking about how you need to have your liberty. And you won't walk around being legalistic and pointing out everybody else's sin all the time. By the way, I got enough sin in my own life to be worried about yours. I don't have time to be, you know, making sure you're doing everything exactly 100% right. Now, again, there's biblical discipline in the church. And if, there, you know, if somebody's, you know, here with, with a, a woman they're having a, an adulterous affair with and they've left their wife, well, we're going to deal with that, okay? But what I'm saying is I need to be examining my heart before I worry about anybody else's life, amen? And that's a full-time job for me. I don't know about you guys. It's my own walk. How am I doing with the Lord? Love and knowledge must go together. Speaking the truth in love. It is so key. Better. Which is it? To think you know something when you don't know anything or to be known by the one who knows everything. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things... Now, don't you love how... He started off with talking about things offered to idols. By the way, knowledge is nothing. So you guys who were being real arrogant about, well, yeah, I know, what the, I know what it says, and it doesn't say anything about we can eat, and they're just dead idols anyway, and it's all good. He just brings that to the, down to the ground. Knowledge puffs up. Get over it, right? Look at verse 4. Therefore, concerning the things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, though whom are all things and through whom we live. Those who had knowledge would have said, look, it's no big deal. We know that these are blocks of wood. We know that these are carved images. I'm going to be going to India next week. As Pastor Bill mentioned, I would covet your prayers because while I'm there, I'm there during Diwali. I was there last year during Diwali. Diwali is the high Hindu holiday. It's like their, I don't know what the better, I don't know if it's their Christmas or whatever, right? In the Hindu and so faith. So they're out setting off fireworks and they have little shrines set up to the gods all up and down the street. And they have little vendors selling gods on the street. You can buy a small god, a medium god, or a large god. You can buy a purple one, a red one, or a blue one. I'm not kidding you. I almost bought one last year just to come back and say, is this sad or what? The, the goddess that they worship during this time is called Lakshmi. She's the sixth-armed goddess of, of wealth. These people are living in object poverty. They're starving to death, and they're spending what little money they have to buy an idol to the goddess of wealth of which they don't have any. And it breaks your heart. And, and you realize, I'm walking by these shrines, and I'm just, Lord, help these people. This is so sad. And praise God for what Gospel for Asia is doing. They've planted 14,000 churches in India. That's phenomenal. 
Keep praying for them. We support many of their missionaries as a church. And I love being able to go and teach five or 600 guys how to study the Bible and go out and teach it, and they'll use it for a lifetime. I, I'm unworthy of it. I can't believe I get to do this. But the reality is that you can look at those idols, and you and I would say, you know what, if they put a hamburger you know, in the lap of one of those idols, and I walk by, I, could, you know, I wouldn't worry about eating it, you know? It's a piece of plastic. I don't, you put plastic next to it. It looks like a good burger. I'm for it, right? And the reality is that that's kind of what they were saying. They're saying, hey, okay, they offered the meat to an idol. It's a dead block of wood. Who cares? I don't care. I'm, it's cheaper, right? Some of you can bear witness with that, right? I mean, okay, it's $8 a pound over here. It's two, oh, $2. Oh, I get four pounds. I'm going over there. And so what happened was that people were going, and he said, you know what, guys, you're right in the sense that it is just meat offered to an idol. And you're right that the idols aren't real. And you're right, there is only one God. And by the way, if you're here this morning, and be, being in Santa Cruz, there's bound to be a few of you, there is no other God but Jesus Christ. And, I, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Buddha is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. Charles Taze Russell is dead. Every other idol, everything, you know, Lakshmi never lived and is dead. Amen? They're all dead, but our God is a risen and living Savior who triumphed over sin and death. That's the God we serve. And he said, you know what, you're right. We know that there is only one God and we serve him, and he's the true God, and he's the living God, and he's a resurrected Savior, and that's who we serve. And so putting meat in front of an idol means nothing, I'll buy it. But he wanted to talk to them about the weaker brother who would be stumbled by it. Do they have liberty to buy the meat? I say, yes, they do. But should they be concerned about how that might stumble somebody else? If somebody who just came out of idol worship, somebody's a new Christian, and they used to worship Aphrodite, and they used to go to that restaurant, and they used to worship, and they used to go there and make sacrifices, and now they walk by and they see somebody from their church sitting in that restaurant eating some of that meat. It might stumble that weaker brother. And he's telling them, you know what, it's not just about us. It's about how we impact others. And again, they're dead blocks of wood. They're not competing gods. There is no competing God. Did you know that? Because there are no other gods. Amen? There's one God and a bunch of junk, right? There's one God. And there are no other gods. And we have no other gods to worry about because there aren't any. Am I worried about the God of the Muslims? No, because he doesn't exist. Amen? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I don't have to fear any of that. And so there is one God. There is one Father. There is one Lord. There is one King. And the Corinthian Christians may have been reasoning, hey, since the idols are nothing, I can go out and eat. And by the way, in Acts 10, did the Lord tell Peter, rise, kill, and eat? He did, right? And he said, whatever man is called clean, don't let, you know, what God is called clean, let no man call unclean. So man, and Pete, Pete said it. It's in the Bible, right? We know it's okay, so we're going to go have at it. Now, again, we need to think about our brother. Because liber, our liberty does not take away the love that we ought to have for others. We're not, we ought not to exercise our liberty and cause others to stumble. Look at verse 8. However, this, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Not everybody understands, like you do, that it's okay for you to do this. So if you do it, understand, you're going to stumble people. That's what he's telling them. Yeah, you're right. There is only one God. Yeah, you're right. It's just a block of wood. Yeah, you're right. 
You can eat that meat, and it's not contrary to what the Word has said, but there are those who don't get it, and you're going to stumble them. Practical application for today. Maybe you're in the room, and you feel like it's okay for you to have a glass of wine with dinner. And certainly, the Bible says, be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and drunkenness absolutely is a sin. But if now, as a pastor, let me make it real clear for you. First Timothy chapter 3, I believe, clearly says that as a pastor, I am never to drink a drop of alcohol the rest of my life, period. And so I don't. And neither do any of our pastors here. And if you see them, they're fired. Okay, well, here's, here's the thing. <laughs> but, but as Christians, is it, do we have the liberty, the liberty to have a glass of wine with dinner? What do you think the answer is to that? Yes. If you have that liberty and you don't have the conviction that you should not drink any more alcohol the rest of your life, Certainly, you can have a glass of wine with dinner, you know, with your wife, and, you know, and that's fine. You know, as long as drunkenness is not the end result. But, if you go out to a restaurant, and you're sitting at a table, and you order alcohol, and in walks somebody who knows you're a Christian, maybe somebody you've been witnessing to at work, maybe a neighbor friend, maybe somebody who comes to the church you've been ministering to and loving on, and that person struggles with alcohol. And now you drinking that, that, that alcohol in front of them, what have you done? With your liberty, you've stumbled your brother. Can I encourage it? I personally won't drink a non-alcoholic anything in public because, again, I am a pastor, and I don't know who's going to walk in. And the last thing I want to do is stumble anybody. So just, I, the easiest thing is just don't, for me, not do it. If your conviction is, is it's okay to have wine, can I encourage you? Pray about doing it in your home. Amen? Just make sure you've, you know, you pray because you, what you don't want to do is you don't want to take your liberty to stumble a weaker brother. It's not worth it. Because if you love people, you're going to be more worried about people than you are having a glass of wine. Amen? Even though you have the liberty to do it, don't do it if it's going to harm your brother. It's just not worth it. And that's basically Paul's heart. Now, who's weak? He says they're being weak. is defiled. There's several reasons why a, a Christian can be weak. Let me go through these quickly. Number one, they're a new believer. Somebody's a new believer. They don't, you know, they understand salvation, but, you know, when you have a baby, babies wake up, I mean, are born, and they don't know a lot yet, right? And they need to be fed, and they need to be nurtured, and they need to be cared for. So someone can be weak because they're new in their faith. Another reason is they can be sick or diseased. There are people who have been Christians a long time, but have been under the disease of legalism and works to the point that they just don't even grasp the truth. And they're weak. It is interesting. Notice who he says the weak brothers are. He says the weak brothers are the ones who are legalistic. The we, we think that the spiritual brothers are the ones who are pointing out everybody else's sin all the time, but the Bible says the weak brother is the one who's stumbled by everybody else's sin all the time. That's the weak brother. Now, should we grow in holiness? Absolutely. Should we have a desire to be more like our Savior every single day? But you know what? If you're walking around being the sin inspector in everybody else's life, that's a sign that you are weak in your walk with God. Pray for them. Don't walk around pointing fingers at them. Amen? You ought to have a burden for them. Don't be that. You know, there's already one Holy Spirit, and it's not you. Amen? Let the Holy Spirit convict them. Again, live it in front of them, but don't walk around being, you know, pointing everybody's sin out all the time. We don't need sin inspectors. We've got the Holy Spirit. And again, it's works-based salvation, legalism, not fully grasping the grace of God. That's someone who's weak in their faith. Someone who's malnourished. Someone who's never been properly fed. 
And again, I don't want this to come out wrong, but I can't tell you how often I have somebody come be here one Sunday and say, I learned more today than I learned in 10 years at the church I was going to. Why? Now, it has nothing to do with me, please. It has everything to do with the fact that the Word of God's being taught. It's God's Word. We can get up here and read the Bible to you and go sit down, and you're going to learn 500 times more than you would learn going to a lot of churches that just don't open the Bible. Three steps to financial freedom, ten ways to overcome your anger, you know, five, whatever. You need the Bible, amen? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by word of God. And so those are spiritually weak. They can be saved five, ten, twenty years, but still weak because they've been, they're still sucking on a bottle. They need the meat of the word, amen? And so he's saying there's still those who are weak because they don't have knowledge. And, they, and the last reason they can be weak is they lack exercise. Again, all inlet, no outlet is why the Dead Sea is dead, right? You know, uh, 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 and never any outlet. And a lot of Christians, right, just getting fed, fed, fed. And we don't do anything with it. When's the last time you shared your faith? Was I supposed to do that? Well, yes, you were. You know, when's the last time you did anything ministry-wise? You know what? I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you're saved, you're called. Amen? He didn't save you so you could be a pew potato. He saved you that you might, he might use you for his glory. Amen? And so if you're a Christian here, say, Lord, what, what's my calling? Because you've got one. He saved you to use you. And so lacking exercise, in need of exhortation. Well, you guys get that around here. So here's the reality. We need to be exhorted in our walk. Amen? We need to be encouraged to step out in the Lord. And so some of them said, you know, it's nothing to eat it. And others, when, when they saw it, were stumbled. They couldn't eat it. It grieved them that they saw someone eating the food. Verse 8. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat or, or are we better, nor if we do not eat, we are worse. Are we worse? Here's the reality. Eating doesn't make you more holy, and not eating doesn't make you more holy. It's just food. The Bible says, it is, Jesus said, it isn't what goes into man's mouth that defiles him. And too often, again, those who we would think are most spiritual are real fastidious. Well, I can only eat this, and I can only do this. And I hey, that's irrelevant. That's not even the point. You've missed it, right? That's secondary stuff. The reality is our intimacy and our fellowship and our relationship with God that matters. And he says, you know what? It's not the stuff that you eat. It's just food. It's a non-essential of the Christian faith. But Though it's left up to personal conviction, we need to be careful that we not harm a brother. We're almost done. Look at verse 9. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. You know what? It's just food. It doesn't matter. Eating the food sacrificed to idols, you're right. They're blocks of wood, and it won't harm you. It's fine. You understand that they're dead blocks of wood. But if you eat that food, and somebody's walking by, and they used to be involved in idol worship, and it stumbles them and causes them to, to struggle in their walk, what have you done? Do you have liberty to drink that glass of wine? Yes, you do. But if you drink it in front of somebody, you're going to stumble. Was it worth it? The answer is never. Don't allow that liberty that you have to be a stumbling block to those who are weak. Again, the note, the one who is the most... Uh, cares the most about every detail. The one who is legalistic is the one again here who is viewed as weak. The one who would say, you bunch of filthy meat eaters, what's wrong with you, right? The one who would walk by and say, what do you think of eating food sacrificed to idols, man? You're probably not even saved. He says, that's the weak brother. But you're still not to stumble him. 
right? If that's going to get him wrong, don't do it. It's just not worth it. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last, and the only thing we're, we're taking to heaven with us is people. Why would we mess with something that is eternal in a pursuit of something that is temporal? A mature believer has knowledge, but that knowledge brings forth love. To love, to encourage, and to strengthen the weaker brother. We are to choose love over liberty every single time. Amen? Do you have the freedom? Yes. Should you do it if it's going to harm another? No. No. Let's finish up. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. You know what he's saying here? We do have different convictions. Did you know that? And did you know that? Some people think we all should have the exact same convictions. I'm not convinced of that. I'm convinced we should have all the same convictions when it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith. Amen? But, quick example. Some people have a conviction that their kids should go to public school, that they would be salt and light there. And if that's your conviction, then you absolutely should do that. Amen? Some people have a conviction that their kids should go to Christian school because they want them to have Christian influence and to have godly counsel throughout the day. Other people think their kids should be homeschooled because they feel like Christian schools or other places is just a bad place for their kids to be. I believe that all three of those convictions can come from God and all of them can be totally the center of God's will. They're just different in each of those homes. Do you see that? And so if the person who only homeschools says, you got your kids in public school, are you saved or what? Don't you care about your kids? Don't you know what they're teaching them? They're teaching their gorillas down there at that school, right? You know what I mean? And you can do that. And then the person in public school goes, man, you got your kids so sheltered, sitting in the house all day, you got them living in a bubble. What do you think is going to happen when they go outside one of these days, right? You know what I mean? And there's that, we can get legalistic on either end and start blasting each other instead of realizing, okay, if that's the conviction I have, I need to obey the conviction I have. I need to be obedient, follow it, okay? But never take my liberty and use it to stumble another, and never allow my conviction to become legalism. Never allow my conviction to say anybody doesn't homeschool their kids is outside of God's will. I've had people tell me that. My kids are not homeschooled, so I'm outside. No, no, no. I know what God's called me to do, and we do that. And you know what? The same should be true for each other. Let's be convinced in our own mind what God has told us to do. And, and we are not to exercise liberty in a way that will stumble another, cause them to fall, cause the weaker brother to be offended. And it's equally wrong to have legalism and then go after people who don't see things exactly the way we do. Last two verses. Remember that Jesus died for them. They don't need to be offended by our personal opinions. Verse 12. When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. When you stumble a brother, who are you sinning against? The Lord. Why? Because we're His kids. And when someone harms one of his kids, they're sinning against him. When we disobey the word, we're disobeying the Lord and we're sinning against him. Self-righteous legalists appear to be more holy. They may look down on people, but what they're really doing is being judgmental and they have a lack of love towards others. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. You know what? I'd rather err on the side of grace than legalism all day long. And I catch heat for that all the time, by the way, just, just so you know. People tell me I'm not, I'm not, you know, hey, you know what? You guys know your sinners in need of a Savior, amen? You know that He suffered and died that you might have eternal life, but I also want you to know this. He loves you so much, He'd rather die than live without you. You are His treasured possession. 
He's numbered the hairs on your head. He, he loves you. He never stops thinking about you. That's how valuable you are to him. How do you determine the value of something what someone's willing to pay for it? This is what was paid for you. The shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. We need to understand both that we are to walk in holiness, but understand God's grace at the same time. Those two things are not at odds with each other, right? Holiness and grace do work together, amen? And may we pursue holiness. May we pursue God with our whole heart, but may we never be legalistic to the point of stumbling others. We're not to condemn others through personal legalism, and we're not to stumble others through personal liberty. God wants us to love others. Amen? I'm going to love them. Lord, Lord, whatever you want me to do in this case, whatever I need to do, how can I minister to them? Do not confuse personal liberty, again, with cheap grace. Do not confuse that I have liberty in Christ, meaning I can just go live like I want, because, again, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness. Those things should be evident in my life if I've been born again. And there should be a transformation. And the person I used to be before I got saved and the person I am now should be night and day. Amen? You didn't go to church and get saved and your life didn't change. If you did, you weren't saved. Because the word is repent. Amen? And what does that word mean? To turn. It means I was going this way and now I'm going this way. It's a radical transformation. And there's a joy that comes from it. Last verse. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul makes it clear that our actions can never be based just on what we know to be right. Paul knew it was okay to eat meat, didn't he? But what did he just say? You know what? If there's a chance I'll stumble one person, I'll never eat meat again. Because it's not worth it. It's about people, not meat. It's about people, not my liberties. It's about people, not that glass of wine. It's about people, not about me being legalistic about how others should live their life because I have a personal conviction. It's about us just coming to people and sharing with them the love of Almighty God and telling them about His love and about His grace and about His mercy and about the price that was paid and about the blood that was shed that you and I might have eternal life. That should be the heart of the believer, amen? So in closing, our focus in ministry and in our daily walk is to love God and love and build up our brother, not to allow personal liberty to stumble another nor to go on a crusade to make my legalistic personal conviction, the standard for everyone. It's not liberty to the nth degree that makes people stumble. It's not legalism to where I'm running around condemning everybody. It's love. Amen? And that is what will draw people to our Savior when they see the love of God in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word, the word of God, helps us to know the God of the word. We thank you for this love letter. And we thank you that you have set us free. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. But Lord, I pray that we would not take liberty to the point of stumbling another. And Lord, we would not be so legalistic that we would condemn others. But Father, I pray that we'd be faithful to everything written in your word, that we would never water down the gospel, we would never water down your truth. But Father, we would not allow non-essentials to cause division in the body of Christ. That we would not allow non-essentials to be an area of debate when we ought to be reaching out to those who need to hear about the love of God. Help us, Lord, to have a burden for the lost. Give us the love that you have for us, for one another. Give us the love that you have for us, for those who don't know you, for our neighbors, for our unsaved family, and for our friends. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, that, Lord, they would know that while they are sinners, that, Father, you are, have sent your Son to be their Savior. 
And Lord, you suffer, your son suffered and died. His blood was shed that we might have eternal life. He paid a price that nobody else could. And Lord, it's when we come to him with brokenness and repentant hearts and ask him to be our savior that we're born again and we become new creations in Christ. So Lord, I pray, if there's anybody here at all, Lord, just open their eyes to your truth and their need for you. Father, we love you and we praise you. Lord, may we, again, just have a deeper passion for you and a love for your people. In Jesus' name we pray and God, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song. Thank you.